Hi, I'm Stacey Schumacher-Rowan, Editor-in-Chief of Hospitality Design Magazine with HD's What I've Learned podcast. I had the chance to chat over Zoom with Linda Neary and Rosanna Hugh, who will be inducted into our Platinum Circle this year. The Shanghai-based practice is as prolific as its work is thought-provoking, thanks to the leadership provided by the husband and wife duo, who met while they were studying architecture as undergraduates at the University of California, Berkeley. They both cut their teeth with Michael Graves before deciding to go out on their own in 2004 after moving back to Shanghai. One of their early projects was the Waterhouse Hotel, which established Nary and Hugh as a firm known for its sensitive approach to design. In addition to helming their studio, they both teach at Harvard's Graduate School of Design as visiting professors. Beyond the iconic buildings they've created, the duo sees it as their legacy to give back what they've learned to the next generation of designers and architects. So hi, I'm here with Lyndon and uh, Rosanna. Thank you both for joining me today virtually. How are you? Very good. Good morning, Stacey. Good morning. Good morning from Shanghai. Yeah, it's so good to see you. So um, tell us a little, let's start at the beginning. Where Did you both know you had a love for design early on? Are there any early childhood memories of design or were you creative as a kid? Yeah, um, Interestingly enough, um, my grandparents had a small um, furniture store, retail store, and a small um, manufacturing. Uh, there, there was a small um, manufacturing component, and uh, that was in the Philippines. And um, I remember growing up with original Eames uh, chair coming into our house, and I remember my dad... Um, not the creative one. It was more my uncle. My dad was really creative business-wise. Had uh, all these um, imported Italian chairs coming into our house. Um, and also, so, but I've always, I've, I grew up loving to draw. So I love drawing. Um, and so whether that was design at that time or art, painting, sculpture, um, I didn't really know the differentiation, but I always knew um, that that was my interest, just uh, being artistic in general. And I just always, I grew up uh, thinking to myself, how could, in a very business setting, uh, all my brothers all went into business um, and being a Chinese, you know, a diasporic Chinese, that was the only way, that was the only route. There was no other possibilities. And um, I guess the rebellious side in me always thought to myself, how am I going to break away from my family? <laughs> One, two, how am I going to break away from this monotony of just business, all business, business, business? Um, our conversation uh, during dinner uh, was all about business opportunities and business ideas and not that I could not participate, but I just, that was just not my passion. Yeah, yeah and my story is quite different. Um, I was not exposed to a lot of art um, or kind of, you know, uh, uh, visually creative uh, things. Um, but but I grew up with a lot of music. So, so I think maybe, you know, that's the kind of the artistic side. Um, and then... Uh, all throughout high school, I was really just hardcore math and science uh, and almost, well, both my siblings are, are in, uh, they study engineering. So most of my circle was kind of like, you know, engineering, uh, you know, medicine, law. Uh, and so it was really, uh, it was not until I, I started applying to college, I had to think about what to major in. And then uh, I just picked architecture without knowing anything about architecture, thinking that it's kind of, you know, perfect balance between uh, the left and the right brain, because I, I thought I would be interested in design. But at the time, my un- only understanding of design was fashion. And of course, like, you know, every teenage girl, you love clothes. And so I thought, OK, I'll, I'll try it out. And then um, first year at Berkeley, I, I just fell in love with the subject and and stayed in ever since. Lyndon, did you go to school for architecture as well? Yes. Well, initially I started uh, at Berkeley, I started uh, as an art major. Um, Against that was another way to, I 
that was uh, another defiant way against my uh, very strong-willed father. Uh, and I did not tell him at all. Um, he was still in Asia. And my first two years at uh, Berkeley, um, actually, it was the end of the first semester of my sophomore year when I got an email. I wasn't sure if that was an email. It was a letter, actually. Um, I just dated myself. Uh, and my uh, my father had said that, you know, I should be spending more time with with you and your siblings in the U.S., uh, I should come more often. And that's when I panicked because <laughs> I basically told him that I was a mechanical engineer, uh, studying mechanical engineering at Berkeley. And of course, he was extremely proud. It's very hard to get into <laughs> to Berkeley as an engineering major. So I was just making that up. Uh, but I was really painting away. I was really happy. But then I kind of panicked. And, you know, there's as an art major, you don't just transfer to an engineering department overnight. There was absolutely no way you could. You, it, that's not even possible. I still remember you had to take physics 7A, 7B. And so I quickly took uh, physics 8A, uh, which was the criteria for uh, architecture. Thank goodness I made it. Uh, and so my transfer was successful at uh, the end of my sophomore year. Yeah. So, Is that where you two met at Berkeley? Uh, we met earlier, but that's when we started becoming friends. Yeah. When we started dating. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we have two stories behind that. Rosanna is always like, you know, constantly in debt, still in denial. You know, we've been married for 29 years, you know. <laughs> but <laughs> I'm still very much in love with her, but, you know, I'm not so sure. She's still like questioning about the meaning of life and the meaning of love, which is, <laughs> so I'm constantly in pursuit, Stacey. You understand? <laughs> <laughs> keep you on your toes i guess that's right we've been th together 35 years again that's dating us again you know constantly yeah, we, we started dating my my freshman year and he he was a senior when i was a freshman at berkeley yeah got it and then you both went on to different careers or first jobs or were you both together um we all we both stayed in architecture uh it's it's quite unusual um but but we both stayed in architecture since our undergraduate. So we both graduated with an architecture degree as an, uh, as an undergrad. And then he worked for two years in San Francisco uh, as an architect um, and then went on to grad school at Harvard. And I worked for also two years in San Francisco with a different firm um, as an architecture intern and then went on to uh, Princeton for my master's. Got it. But before she went to Princeton that summer, we got married and we moved cross country. Yes, we, we drove, drove cross, cross country, country from San Francisco straight to uh, New Jersey. Love it. And was it your schooling that brought you there, Lyndon? Uh, at Harvard, Cambridge, yes. Yeah. Yes, the East Coast, yeah. So that was the first time uh, I moved from the West Coast uh, to the East Coast. So you can imagine that I, I was quite shocked because, I mean, maybe now it's a little bit different, but during that time, you know, you go from California where in diversity was uh, rampant um, and being Asian was nothing unique all the way to Cambridge. Cambridge, majority. Was, <laughs> Cambridge was quite liberal, but still... Um, there were a few, I mean, now there are a lot of uh, Chinese students, but during that time, I was probably one of three. One of the few, yeah. Yeah. And they were not from China, Chinese. I was Chinese from the Philippines. Chinese. There was an individual Chinese from um, Singapore and maybe two American-born Chinese or American-born Korean, but that was about it. Maybe four or five, a few from Hong Kong, but yeah, it was really a minority. And from there, you went on to work for Michael Graves, correct? I worked for uh, various smaller firms um, before I worked for Michael Graves. And partially, um, that was because Rosanna didn't really want me to commute to New York. Um, she was still studying at Princeton. And uh, it was unfair for her because she would have to pick me up or drop me off and pick me up uh, at the dinky station if you know Princeton uh, and so uh, we only had one car <laughs> yeah 
<laughs> and um, yeah, so um, I worked for Mike DeGrace for 10 years. What was that like? It was amazing. It was amazing. Um, oftentimes people tend to focus on the stylistic nature of what Michael Graves represent, at least during that time. And even now, I do believe his history will paint him differently. Um, he was amazing, uh, at least for both Rosanna and myself. Uh, in many ways, he was a mentor, even though there were over a hundred people at that time when I was there. He, he took it upon himself. He had his favorites, um, you know, and that was the common complaint uh, in the office. I just happened to be one of his favorites. So <laughs> it became, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't a problem. He gave me a lot of freedom uh, to run. And, and we traveled to Asia, all over Asia, um, to different projects. Um, and so I saw the personal side in him. Um, some of the more, even more intimate side, which I'll probably write a book one day, you know, you know, the, the, the. You're being recorded. I, I understand <laughs> that. I just want to give it a spice called the postmodern affair. Anyways, that's just, let's, that's a whole completely okay. different thing. Stacey, yeah. that's a whole different book that, that will bring about a whole crowd for your hospitality <laughs> platinum circle thing, not because of the award, but. um. He can start your gossip column. Yes. I'm very good at that. Uh, and and so it was it was a lot of fun uh and but what was really important um was the fact that he introduced the idea of an interdisciplinary practice in the field of architecture so architecture was not limited to the big a uh, but to understand interiority to understand product design to understand master planning graphic design and all the other things uh that's very important in fact he was the one that brought uh, the idea of just John Ruskin's uh, mentality on sort of understanding uh, traveling and understanding uh, culture and not just possessing it, but actually understanding the essence of it, which is actually our studio topic this year at Harvard, which is kind of interesting that's come up, come around. Interesting. And you went to uh, here as well, right, Rosanna? Uh, yes. Uh, Michael was... Um, of, of a different nature for me as, as a star. He, he was my teacher. Uh, he was my thesis advisor, in fact, at Princeton. So I, I first knew him in school. Um, and then uh, his office started working on a project in Shanghai. And they uh, basically came to me and asked me if I wanted to run the project. Um, and, and so I went over for, for the project uh, to, to Michael's office. But I think you know, more than professional kind of influence. I mean, obviously, you know, he, he was a great teacher um, and, and a great boss. Uh, we learned so much from him, but I think it, it was the personal side that he uh, had to offer uh, that really made us very uh, impressed and, and felt close to him. Uh, he was, I mean, before we even knew him well, I felt he just took all of us very seriously. I remember it you know, when I was uh, when I was still a grad student, and Lyndon was an entry level architect uh, in his office, we wanted to go to Japan one summer, uh, and you know, he didn't just give us a list. He booked a time, asked us to go to his office. He sat down and he opened an entire folder and went through every card, every image, and just gave us like I don't know, like two hours of you know, like travel advice, like where to eat, where to buy, like, you know, what kimono shop to, and, and we were both just like, wow, I can't believe he did that for us. And, and then, you know, for the, the next like 10 years, you know, working with him and traveling with him, uh, he was, he just showed like so much generosity and um, yeah. And like, like on every level, he, he, we were just really impressed with him. Was there one early project that has stuck with you that you worked on there, worked with him with? Well, um, I I took on a really special project in his office. Uh, it was the reconstruction of, of the Duomo mm. in Florence. And it was like an invited competition. Uh, obviously, it's a tiny project. It's just a, a designing of a Baldacchino. And there were 10 architects in the world who were invited to, to work on that project. And so I worked on it with him. So it was just Michael and me on the project. So, you know, in, in a big office, I was an intern uh, and, uh, well, at least entry level uh, 
Um, and for him to work on our project with me, I, I thought it was really special. Yeah. Sure. Uh, for me, I was, I was there for 10 years. And so I was working on a lot of cultural projects um, and many of them uh, were under either a senior associate or a partner. Um, and as I grew uh, within the practice, um, I was I started running some of the Asian projects uh, just because I was interested in also delving into not just uh, the business side of the practice, but also especially the design practice uh, and understanding how the client, uh, their requirements and how we can meet them. And it was interesting because I think in many ways, what brought us to Shanghai was three on the bun. So that actually um, was a project that I worked with a partner and Michael. Um, and so that was a, an amazing journey uh, because we, we, I had to deal with not just the um, project itself, but the politics behind it dealing with all the different personality from John George to Nobu, uh, you name it, uh, all the names you are common names now in the U.S. I mean, this was their first foray into China and Asia specifically. Um, and so we had to deal with a lot of personalities, top artists, uh, significant Chinese artists that are not not touchable anymore right now. I mean, when this when Three and the Bun opened up, they were all young, they were all upcoming. If we had bought their paintings then, <laughs> I mean, the top 20 artists today in China, I would say so all were there. Yeah. If, if we no, had we, bought- We missed the boat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> say the least, yeah. Um, and so there were a lot of things, a lot of movement that was happening through that building because it was not just uh, a restaurant. It was an epicenter of culture. So there was a gallery. Um, you know, there was uh, a place of think tank uh, and, and many different things, um, activities uh, going on. Um, so that was there was also retail aside from a restaurant. So a lot of firsts in that building. Um, so that really was very, very, very um impressionable for me yeah it's gonna be part of your tell-all book as well yes. <laughs> <laughs> stories um so you started your own firm in 2004 so 17 plus years why did you decide to to go out on your own what did you want to create um what you know why was it the right time Actually, we really did not want to start our own practice uh, initially. It was we were asked to come here, uh, or I was asked to come here to run the, the project three in the bun by the client. Initially, the client wanted someone else because uh, I was pretty senior by then. Or actually, the client wanted a representative from Michael Graves. I didn't know then that he, the CEO, really wanted me, uh, and. When he made it, when he made his um, wishes clear to me, I said to myself, I, I told him, I said, I can't negotiate on my own behalf. And uh, I, I remember uh, what started in 2003 at that time, what started as um, six weeks uh, assignment uh, turned into 10 weeks uh, because the client really liked the fact that the project was moving rather fast after, you know, after being going through uh, the project has been uh, under construction for three years. Um, and all of a sudden, um, it went from six weeks to 10 weeks and then SARS and, uh, SARS came. Um, and we, I was with Rosanna, um, one of the criteria to move to Shanghai temporarily was to bring three of our kids with us. The youngest was four months old. And I said, I'm, I was not about to leave Rosanna with the three kids, and be in Shanghai for six weeks. Uh, aside from being guilty, uh, I just didn't think that was the right thing to do. Um, and so six weeks became 10 weeks and SARS uh, came. And there was absolutely no way we could fly back. Uh, the U.S. just kind of closed their border borders to anyone from China, and rightfully so at that time. And so it went from six weeks to 10 weeks to three months. And everyone got so used to me being here and the project was moving at a pace that they never thought possible. Um, I didn't think either, uh, but, you know, decisions were being made and we were sending faxes back to the main office and all that. So it went from, uh, by the time SARS was over, they got so used to it. They said, look, why don't you continue to stay here? 
um, and the office was more than happy because the project was moving along uh, and they were all they were compensated for this and so it went from uh, three months to six months six months to nine months all the way to the opening uh, of three on the bun which was a year and by then uh, I was sitting here and I said, wow, it was amazing that I didn't really travel ma- much. I mean, I traveled to Japan. I traveled within Asia. I was allowed to. And that helped with a lot of Asian projects uh, for Michael Graves as well. So that also made it easier for the office in Princeton. Um, and to make the long story short, we realized that it was it was very good that our kids were speaking Chinese to each other, arguing with each other in Chinese. And we said to ourselves, wow, maybe that's something we really uh, we need to make sure that they're back to their roots uh, to have this kind of cultural underpinning um, within them. Um, and so I suggested to have an office in Asia for Michael Graves. Uh, and, and so that all started. And of course, yeah. it, it got so it complicant. It, it wasn't about like, you know, coming out, being independent. It, no. it was more like, oh, we really liked living in Shanghai. Um, and on a lot of personal level, it just all made sense. And we, and then Lyndon proposed to the office. Yeah. Like, why don't we just help Michael start an office here? Why don't we, instead of traveling, um, but it was complicated, obviously, and there were a lot of issues. And, you know, at that time, um, I was rather young. I was in my thirties and to trust a 30 something to start a practice. I, I completely understand where the office was coming from. And, you know, they were so used to traveling back and forth, having people coming back and forth. And um, it didn't really quite make sense. I can understand that, you know, the, the uh, upstart costs, you know, and, you know, having people here uh, full on and, um, some people were for it. Uh, Michael was for it. Uh, there was this principal that I worked for, Tom Rowe. He was uh, for it as well. Uh, it was kind of interesting. Uh, but I think one led one thing led to another. I mean, I don't think there was one it major. Dis- a, yeah. I don't think there was one major decision to say it was approved or not approved. But they just decided maybe that was not the right choice, or maybe we can wait and. By then, I was getting nervous that my kids would go back and not know Chinese. And so we had to make a very hard decision. Um, And I said, you know, maybe it's time for me after 10 and a half years uh, to come to Asia, not knowing (laughs) what we were going to do. That was kind of reckless, actually. (laughs) Now thinking back. It was very risky. It was really crazy. We were naive. We yeah. had no idea God, <laughs> what we were doing. Yeah, we were, we were, uh, yeah. <laughs> Is ignorance bliss though? Or are there some things you would have liked to know that you know now? I think it was probably good at that time. I think if we know too much, we'd probably be so worried about many things. I still remember six months uh, into the practice, we have no project. You can imagine. Uh, I mean, in Shanghai, everyone was doing high rises, right? And there was no way people would, I, I didn't, first, we didn't have that kind of background. And second, we didn't work for S, I mean, we didn't work for KPF or SOM at that time where we, we have a lot of these experience. And first, no one would give it to you. And the liability behind that was just too high. We were not proven. Uh, there was not a lot of interior fed out at that time. And so we decided, in fact, I had given up on architecture and I said, you know what, maybe my father was right all this time. Maybe I should go back into business. And so we started this idea of having a a new Chinese uh, branded furniture or accessories brand, Um, you know, and it started with with the the label called Objects, Dongxin, which is East and West. Uh, That's how it started. Um, Dongxin in Chinese means... Um, and Dongxi in English means object, but it also is the word East and West. Um, and so we thought it was kind of interesting, small objects, big objects, imported objects, you know, handmade objects, sustainable objects. So it was good to have that kind of uh, name. Um, and I still remember Rosanna coming to me six months after we started because, Lyndon, you know, we have three kids. You remember we, we brought with us three kids. Uh, we have not had any salary for six months what are you going to do about this you have a dream you have an idea you have this vision of creating a new chinese brand well that's great and good it's good for museum we have beautiful pieces but this is not a viable option we should do something about this Uh, that that's when I, i came out of 
my dream stage and say, okay, maybe let's try to find project. Let's maybe let's try to make all the products we're making and let's try to sell. So is that what you did first? You sold pro uh, products and then before getting your first project? Both. Yeah, it was like simultaneous. Um, we um, started a company called Design Republic, which is um, um, sort of a platform for for retailing design objects and, and port of furniture, and then also designing some products on the side. Uh, and then and then projects started coming through. Uh, first, it was uh, interior projects. So uh, our very first project was a yoga studio. Um, and in fact, um, yeah, it, and that was the that was our first project, but then it got a lot of international recognition um, through uh, design media internationally. And we were just, it kind of came out of nowhere, um, but we were pleasantly surprised. And then from that, uh, you know, led to other projects and then later on to architecture projects and a lot of hospitality projects as well, I think after Waterhouse. Yeah, that, that <laughs> to, to think back, actually, that's very memorable because that's probably one of, also one of our favorite projects because both Rosanna and I were literally on the construction side. We were remaking things because... We were tiny at the time. There were yeah. probably just you know, the two four. Of us. Well, the two of us and would like drafts. to draft people, you know. And um, I, I remember the fee uh, quite clearly. It was less than ten. It was less than ten thousand U.S. dollars. Okay. And you, and I you, didn't know that. Yes, well, <laughs> you, you know now. I didn't. I didn't want to have her. I don't worry. touch fees, so, so I have that, no idea what our fees are. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I hide all the fees from her because I just knew she's the. Wor I would have said no. Don't she's, do it. She's <laughs> the type who, who worries a lot, and I still remember. Uh, the idea of value engineering VE was brought to another level because literally the client was saying this plywood was so expensive. Is there any way of redoing a, a, a beautiful plywood? I don't like veneer because it's too expensive. So is there any way? So we were cutting, we were literally using labor to overcompensate all the other things. So we would cut a plywood, paint it and re-glue re them together as the main wall. Um, and um, yeah, I still remember the uh, Frame Magazine, uh, one of the editor was visiting Shanghai and was shocked. You know, we, we had ropes and we would dye them green trees, you yeah, know, representation of trees and hang them in the space as a divider. Um, I still remember the client goes, have you done yoga, Lyndon? I said, no, but this will be the first time I will do it. I'll come to your class. And it was a <laughs> lot of pain. I went to the class because I just want to know. I, I was so desperate. I, we were so desperate. And I realized maybe it was the wrong move to leave Michael Graves. I had a cushy job. You know, we had a beautiful house in Princeton, New Jersey with a hundred, uh, hundred trees behind our house. It was, it was quite comfortable. It was really comfortable. And to just come into Shanghai in a rented place, a small, actually it was just two bedrooms, uh, very small, uh, one for us and the other one for the three kids to be together. And uh, yeah, those were, uh, to think about it, those were really crazy. And we probably would not do it again if we had known all the difficulties we were going through. Yeah, but also I think no one knew at the time that the next five to 10 years in Shanghai was going to be such a kind of renaissance, you know, um, everything pretty much exploded. Um, and it just, it, we were, we did not know that it wasn't, it wasn't like, uh, it, it wasn't strategic. Um, I think looking back, a lot of people say, Oh, you guys were really there at the right place at the right time, but no one knew, you know, Right. Everyone thought yeah. everyone thought we were really smart, and you know, as for prediction for the next ten years, I said, "Trust me, don't <laughs> ask us. <laughs> we're just naive, young, uh, fearless, um, and it was also a good way for us to be closer to Asia, uh, to understand our roots, and to come back to our roots. Also, yeah. to be closer to my grandmother mm -hmm. uh, and a lot of my relatives and Rosanna's relatives. Yeah. And you know, my father's originally from Shanghai, so I felt. I felt like, you know, coming full circle, right? He left Shanghai when he was about 16, 17. And then I came back in my 30s and brought three kids. So all three of our kids grew up here. So it's just really, you know, on a personal level, very rewarding. Yeah. 
were your kids on site with you? I mean, were you taking them with you places? Oh, yes. <laughs> they, yeah, they just, I think they, they lived to architect, architect's childhood. <laughs> Both are, fantasy and nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, are, they, any them, are any of them architects now? Uh, not yet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we have no idea. Most likely not. But yeah, they're all studying. They're all back in the U.S. Yeah, studying. but they're all very artistic uh, and and you know a wealth of architect architecture knowledge. <laughs> Got it. Um, what do you think would be would you identify as your big break? I, th- I think we'd probably do two projects. I would say when we first opened. Uh, in 2006, um, Design Republic store. Mm. I think that was um, a big break from uh, uh, from from China's point of view. China's never seen a store with uh, beautiful products, let alone all the classical ones. And it was shown in a setting like a museum. So they were quite confused. Is this a retail store? Is this a platform? Is this a school? Is this a museum? In many ways, it's not all of the above, and yet it's all of the above, right? So that was that was very diff- difficult for comprehend. But because of that, they were really interested, and the government was also very interested in kind of supporting it. And so both Rosanna and I. I was thrown into the, the limelight sort of reluctantly as kind of the ambassador of Chinese design or, or bringing in the best, what the best could offer back to, to China. Cause I was frustrated with all the cap- copies. Uh, and, and I was determined, you know, to have a completely different image of what Chinese design would be like. Um, so our, my goal was, look, you guys need to know the classic in order for you to even produce. Right. So this idea of just copying does not work. Um, and so our goal with Design Republic was to bring the best of what the world can offer and one day to bring uh, some of the best of what China can offer back to the world. Right. So it was a kind of naive, rather simple um, a strategy. But that was more from an uh, um, curatorial, um, cultural. cultural, maybe even interior, one could argue, because we did the interior space of, of that project that awareness, that breakthrough, but it was limited to China and Asia as a whole, not so much the US and Europe. But I think what um, the project that I think uh, had a major breakthrough was probably Waterhouse. Um, And that was about 10 and a half, 11 years ago now. Mm -hmm. Uh, When that opened, I think a lot of architects then, even Chinese architects, thought we were just good interior designers. Um, they didn't really know our background. I think that was the first time um, we were recognized as architects. We would we were recognized as sensitive architects that actually think of sustainable issues, that deals with old and new, that deals with cultural issues. And so a lot of people resonated well with that building. Um, It seems to stand on its own as a statement of what design could potentially be. People were demolishing a lot of things and at an unprecedented rate. So you can imagine the public and the government saying to themselves, mm, maybe this could. And the business people thought, oh, if you keep an old building, it's a cheap way to, uh, it's a cheap investment. So it's perfect, right? So it kind of resonates well all, all, all around the community. Again, not planned by us. <laughs> it was just our conviction and we just did what we believe in. Um, yeah, that project challenged a lot of conventions and broke away a lot of boundaries uh, on on many levels, and I think that's why it it was such a um, noticeable project, um, uh, both from an architecture and, and interior design perspective, because um, it you know it it dealt with like Lyndon said a, a new way of preservation, if you will. Um, it you know questioned whether or not. Uh, you should rip out a building, completely demolish and build a new. Uh, we really challenged it and said, even though it's not one of those buildings that has a bronze plaque, um, and that's what happens in China, in China and Shanghai specifically, uh, you know, uh, all the historic buildings uh, that, um, that are worthy of preserving are granted this plaque. Um, and 
without the plaque, you can actually demolish. And the client wanted us to demolish, but we went on site and we said, you know what, this is actually much more interesting, especially as a hotel. Uh, because, you know, people come to China, people come to Shanghai, what do they want to see? I think we want them to see a certain, you know, authenticity, uh, you know, uh, kind of staying in a in a hotel that has pieces of history. So so we retain a lot of things that most people would just rip out. Um, and then on the other hand, it's a really uh, inventive way of working with a boutique hotel. Uh, all 19 rooms are totally different. So we had to design like 19 different room types, which... Uh, you we'll know, never really, do that again. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's not a very sound uh, way to practice design. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but I think the client appreciated, the market appreciated. So uh, it became like a real uh, destination for Shanghai. And it also it was, it used a part of Shanghai that was really like, you know, no one visited that part of the Bund. Um, it's really kind of, even though it wasn't really that far out, but still quite inconvenient to get to. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, because of what we designed, people started going there. And then, you know, that kind of made that area um, much thrive. more active. And, and, yeah. and what are you looking forward to? Or is there one that you've recently opened that you're really proud of or one that's coming down the line um, that you're excited about? There's a lot of projects that um, we're, interest, uh, we're, we're excited about, a number of them in Europe. Um, but I think we have a few projects. One is um, it's, it's the opening of the first Chinese uh, whiskey, whiskey distillery. Oh, that's fun. Uh, by Pernod Ricard. Um, and so it's a, um, quite an amazing um, sort of journey for us because it, was a, it started as a competition. So we won the competition and it's in the middle of China uh, in um, Sichuan where all the pandas are. And so this is in the remote area. I'm using that term kind of loosely where the pandas are because I know I'm addressing to the Western world uh, for you guys to have a context of where it is. It's in the middle of China. Um, it's a beautiful, uh, sacred place. And so when, when we started this project, the tension between, because it's also a highly religious site uh, where people, a Buddhist monk would go and retreat themselves and all that. So imagine Buddhism being religious and alcohol coming together. So it's kind of that, that duality. So we dealt with the idea of building in a beautiful landscape. You know, how do you blur it? And how do you kind of combine them in ways that they can cohabitate and work together seamlessly. There's also another project down south, which I, I'm really excited about. Um, Wangke, the developer, took over the old village instead of just demolishing it, decided that it's time as developers in China that maybe we kind of reinvigorate the program. So they took over an old town uh, with real... Um, 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 life condition happening um and they've they've taken over this old town and basically told everyone look we're going to renovate your building uh we're going to make sure that the rent actually goes up uh by by all this uh renovation uh revitalizing this town and we're going to bring all the um different brands to have an opportunity to come to this old town um and in in return the owner of this building uh, allows uh, Wangko, the developer, to have 20 years lease. Uh, and of course, they also share from the profit. Um, there's about 240 buildings that they're renovating, and there's 20 buildings they have. They ask international architects of architects of renown to build different things, cultural center, and VRDB is doing this kind of uh, retail center. Um, Sejima is doing something. Um, Vo, uh, Votong is doing a park. We're doing a hotel. Uh, and so about 20 different buildings that became, became sort of the centerpiece for, for this. Uh, and the hotel is about to open soon. Like in January. Time. Yeah. So we'll show you images of that, which is quite interesting. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 11 rooms. Another small one. <laughs> Are yes. there 11 different types? <laughs> 
they're again, again, they're all different. <laughs> I never learned. We never learned from our lessons. We said to ourselves, swear to ourselves, we'll never do that again. And of course, we have an amazing managing director that draft out all the contracts and the proposal. But you know, we kind of just like, yeah, I think this is a good opportunity to change this corner room. <laughs> exactly. Well, at least it's eight less than the other one. Um, um, What's your process like? How involved are you still in each project? And is there a part of the process that you each like differently or that you each like? Is it similar or do you guys take on different roles? Yes, there's many questions. It's interesting you should say that because Rosanna woke up this morning. Last night I went to sleep um, hearing her voice saying this. And then we've really got to change how we practice architecture and I went to sleep and this morning she woke up and she says you know Lyndon just so just to be clear what what I said last night um you know we could not possibly be on top of every single project like the way we do it now because it's just not sustainable um it, it is both the strength of Miriam who but perhaps also our Achilles heels um and that's the reason why we can never, you know, get um, to 300 or 400. We're always at around to 90 to 110, 90 to 110. Um, I mean, we not had, that we want to. It's not that we want to. It's, it's a up, question that we If it's to up to Rosanna, it'll be 30. Um, last year, we had over, during COVID year, we had over 500 requests to do projects. Yeah, 500 zero, zero, over. Uh, this year, we're... Uh, it's not even December yet, and we're over that, right? And we took maybe seven last year. This year, maybe we took six, you know? Uh, and it's hard. It's very hard, Stacey, because sometimes you look at those projects, they're amazing. Um, and we're just, we're very happy. We have uh, many practices uh, that had spun off from our practice, uh, both architecture, interior, and product design. And so we're really proud of... Uh, our little babies, uh, for a lack of better description. So a lot of these projects go to them if the client uh, is is okay with it. Um, at least the smaller ones. Uh, but it's it's been it's been um, it's both um, rewarding, but at the same time, um, seeing some of these amazing projects um, and not being able to do them because that's just reality uh, is also difficult. Yeah. And it's a fine line, right? The more you take on, the bigger you have to grow, the less you're involved, you know, so. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So, so we need to make some hard decisions. Um, you can't have everything. And basically, I mean, you didn't tell Stacy the other part of what I said this morning. It's not just about work, but it's also life. Like, you know, how, yeah, how hard do we want to continue? Okay. Not that we don't enjoy our work. We definitely do, but but sometimes I feel like 24 hours a day, it's just like, it's, it's all about work. And, and I just feel like at this age, we probably need to slow down a little bit. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, we, we, we need to have that conversation. How, how do we balance everything that that's around us? And also we're teaching, you know, and that's <laughs> we're, it, that's that. we're teaching a full studio load, and so actually that's, two full loads. Yeah, <laughs> we're, we're teaching in two different schools right now this semester. How's your team set up? The nine, so you said ninety to hundred people. So do you have studios and studio leaders, or do they work across projects? So it's the interesting thing to me is you see hospitality, you see commercial, you see urban planning. I mean, you see cultural. You see so many things come across your. That's that's the intentional. Our setup from from the get go is very important for us that there was no typecasting. So. Um, when I go into a studio uh, full of product designers, I made sure I asked them uh, about the significance of Adolf Loss uh, during the secessionist movement, for instance, or I would give a little talk about it. Uh, when I'm among architects, I would talk about uh, why Hoffman is not just an architect, but the importance of Hoffman uh, in the lives of the Viennese. 
um, or what Akil Castiglione means uh, to Sotsas and all that. Uh, so that, it's a very intentional and we mix them up. So every project, there will always be an architect and your designer, a product designer, constant, constant. And there will be this argument and quite interesting because some are more interested in the more myopic and the small and some are interested in the bigger picture. But you need to constantly shift and change because once a team, certain directions uh, maybe going a little too interior like and the space is not being considered I would bring someone to kind of either stimulate or provoke that whole discussion uh, people often say Lyndon and Rosanna is very intentional they bring people and you know and they bring people to the team that's their direction of where that team is going and it's a constant uh, shift however having said that I need to give credit where credit is due um, we have a number of amazing people. First, we have an amazing managing director who's worked with us for many years since Michael Graves' days. Um, he is seen as extremely managerial and extremely technical, but I only see him as an amazing designer when we work uh, together at Graves. So it's amazing to have someone with uh, an extremely organized head that actually has amazing sensibilities. Um, below him, are a number of associate directors and senior associates. There's about 10 of them. Um, so and they're the project leads. And then below them, project. there are associate, another 10 associate. And so there, there is a tier system, uh, but obviously it's very loosely defined. And many of them are very well traveled. A lot of them are bilingual. <laughs> It's loosely defined because that's what that's how you want them to be. But, but in fact, they're not loosely defined because, because we have a real chart. Stacey, you should you should make sure we don't say this during the platinum award. Yes, yes, loosely defined. We actually have a we have a very organized uh, O chart yeah. that's so, not so, loosely defined. So where, like, Organization. <laughs> so Rosanna is very organized. It yeah. drives Rosanna crazy because you can imagine. I just go in there. I'm really a very unstable individual. I'm very stable at home. You can ask Rosanna. We've been together for 35 years. Okay? She's very unstable at home. I'm very stable at home. When we travel, she absolutely does not plan anything. I'm the one. I'm the planner. But I, when I go to the office, I just... She doesn't plan anything. I, just, I become a different individual. I don't like set meetings. So it's like a doctor's office, like in a Chinese hospital, where you stand in line and then you decide whether you're actually going to meet the doctor that day or not. That happens. There's no such thing. When you go to a doctor, when you go to a, a hospital here, you basically have to stand in line and there is a time between eight to 12 that you get to see the doctor. And if it's full and you happen to wake up so late, you know, there's no such thing as making an appointment. Okay. And, yeah, and, I, I, and I go strictly with my schedule. So <laughs> I, totally I, took that, I said, that's a great idea. So oftentimes by six o'clock, the line gets really long outside of my office, you know, and, and I have a side door. If I decide not to see you, I just go away. I just <laughs> run away. Um, so it's, it's quite interesting, sort of. And it's been working for the last, <laughs> despite the problems. Uh, it seems to be working. Wait, okay, so I love your, your back and forth. So do you guys have different roles then in the office? Um, I know, Rosanna, you said you, you don't do fees. <laughs> so like, you know, do you guys have lanes that you try to stay in? And how do you work? together as husband and wife all day, you know, as you said, like 24 hours. Yeah, that's quite organic. So, so that is truly loosely defined <laughs> uh, because we have never since day one, we've never sat down and said, you do this and I do this, but just by virtue of our difference uh, in personality and uh, experience um, and ability, I think, uh, you know, things kind of fall naturally on different plates. So, for example, uh, Lyndon is great with with fees. Uh, I can't remember. I can't remember numbers. So, you know, if you uh, if you talk to me about fees, I will give you the wrong fee. So, I so I never I never give any quotation. Uh, so that's that's Lyndon. But I'm better with contracts. Um, so I I am more detailed and I have a, I have a much more kind of legalistic head. So when it comes to contracts, I will review them. Um, and then when it comes to organization, that's more me. Uh, when it comes to schemes and schematic, that's definitely Lyndon because <laughs> he's just, he just has different ideas every day, every minute. 
so he's more of an attitude person, and I'm the I'm the one who comes in and says, "You got to stop. Uh, we don't need twenty or two hundred schemes. We just need two. <laughs> we just need two really good schemes." And so I um I, I go in and I you know I I cut out and cross things out. Um, I'm probably you're a good critic. We're we're both good in uh, design development. Uh, but Lyndon is better during construction and detail phase. Uh, and I'm probably better in kind of closing and packaging uh, at, at the very end. And also with kind of, you know, uh, press releases, uh, how to represent the project and how to speak about it. I, I, I always go to Rosanna when I want the truth. <laughs> so oftentimes when I actually don't want the truth, I want the project to just go through. Stays away from I stay away from Rosanna. <laughs> but if, if, uh, <laughs> You have to be really strong to be under the scrutiny of Rosanna's criticism. Um, Rosanna's not afraid to fail students in class. Um, and um, Rosanna, in Chinese, we call it 对事不是对人. Rosanna is only after the matter and not the individual. It's not personal with her. Um, and so when I'm uncomfortable with a scheme, <laughs> when I'm uncomfortable, like yesterday, I'm really uncomfortable that with a scheme and it's a scheme I created and I know that fully well. And I just didn't know what's wrong with it. I just, I asked Rosanna to come in and, and it was harsh. The criticism was harsh and it was brutal, but actually in, in many ways, um, in, in a very sick way, I kind of like it. You know, I like that pain because I, I just don't like to be in a place when everyone's constantly praising you. So um, Rosanna is the perfect balance to completely kind of put me back to, you know, where I belong. And it's, it's a grounding process and it happens, but, but I can't do it every day because that's just humbling process. One thing humbling is one thing to have low self-esteem is another, right? <laughs> so if you, if you have to have Rosanna crit you every day, you'll have very major low self-esteem once a week. It's really good. You yeah. know, especially when you have good media hype, it's good to have Rosanna around because Rosanna tells you, you know, they're just saying that, right? So, uh, yeah. <laughs> She keeps you ground. She keeps you grounded. I love it. Um, and I know you don't have a like saying you have a style is not what I mean, but you, there's definitely an ethos that runs through your firm. Um, of you know, it's not a particular look. You know, I'm grasping at a word to describe it, and I think just the way you use materiality and you use interior architecture and your buildings that they just are. They just speak so profoundly in a simplistic way. Does that make sense? And I think it's, um, is that, how do you keep that going and pushing that with such a big firm, right? To have these projects, you know, continue to, again, not have a look or style, but to have the ethos of what people come to you for, right? Because you do create beautiful, magical spaces. That's a really good question. And it's a question we ask ourselves um, all the time, if not daily. Um, and recently I've been thinking a lot about how, how our teaching um, actually is very much part of that design process in the office. So we, we kind of teach like we are in a practice and then we practice like we are teaching. Got it. So, uh, so in the office, and, and we hope, you know, and, and it's only a one-win situation if a person who works for the office, if uh, one of the staff, no matter how young or how senior they are, that they're also learning, that they're also getting what they want um, through working with us. And, and, and because we cannot be there with everyone working on all the projects, you know, uh, eight to 10 hours a day, uh, as they're making every decision for our projects, uh, we need to be able to kind of, you know, pass down certain principles of, of design. So once they learn it, it will, it will affect every project they touch. Got it. And it, it includes even after they leave the practice, you know, and that's why I think right now there are a lot of young firms in Shanghai and a lot of their projects uh, evoke uh, styles or ethos of, of Narian Hu. And, and we're actually very happy and very, very proud of their projects because I think they're, they're all kind of like, they all went through the, 
the schooling of, of Nyerian Hu. Um, and so it, it really has to come down to, you know, certain uh, fundamentals of design, uh, certain ideas and ways of thinking about design and architecture. Uh, and I've, I've been thinking a lot about how it's very similar to, you know, when you are a conductor for a symphony or orchestra, um, you're not playing any instrument, right? right. You are really, you're, you're, you're conducting a group of musicians who each play their own instrument, but that sound that you create on your podium, uh, you know, whether you're the Berlin Philharmonia or you're the Philadelphia um, or you're, you know, Boston Symphony, I mean, they have their own distinct sound. And sometimes even when the conductor leaves and there's a new conductor that comes, it retains the same sound and, and it's weird, right? Um, after 50 years, uh, each symphony or orchestra still retains their own characteristic. And it's kind of like that with design. I mean, we kind of have to become, you know, we probably used to be the soloists. We were playing ourselves and then, you know, we're, we're, we're expressing our, our music or our, our ideas and our design on stage. It's easy to do that when you're playing yourself, but then when you become a conductor, you have to teach other people how to play and still create the sound you want. It's a, it's also a byproduct of where we are and the time where we're practicing. Um, if we're trying to do what the Japanese did uh, in terms of architecture, be precise, uh, be all white, I think ask the Chinese contractors to do that, they will bastardize it, right? So it's, it's all, there's always a joke. When we did projects in Japan, trying to get the Japanese designer to do kind of the layered look or the textured look, they will make it so precise that the patina will disappear, right? The idea of having, having green and moss growing in a brick is absolutely a, a cultural faux pas among the Japanese, right? Um, so yesterday, it's interesting you should ask that question because yesterday I look at Rosanna and say, so what do you think I look like? You know, I was actually wearing this yesterday and uh, Rosanna goes, oh, this is really good. Then you look really good. It's the layered look, right? It's another way. The layered look is really interesting because when you don't have a brand, when people look at you, because that's so Gucci, that's so Louis Vuitton, um, or even that's so Comme des Garçons, right? It's, we, we are, we can't, it's, it's some, a lot of people can't really define us because we are the layered look, I, I would argue. And the layered look is part of the time and, and uh, because of, of the period and time where we are, where in sometimes materials are cheap, the, the speed in which the building needs to be done. You, you need to have a combination layered of layered discipline. We have to layer in many different disciplines to buy time. So not just architecture, interior, product design comes into play. The layer of cultural understanding, uh, the layer of different spaces uh, that allows uh, multiple reading and flexibility, because that's what the client wants, right? Most Chinese clients want everything to be flexible. The reason why they don't have a program is because that living room could become a karaoke bar, could become a dining room pre-COVID. They were already doing COVID measures, you know, just for multiple. It's always multi-purpose. Drives me crazy. Everything. Oh, this is a church, a chapel. Yeah, there's a wedding. Sure, it's going to be a chapel. But tomorrow, if there's a banquet, everyone's just going to dine there with round tables, you know, and it, it's absolutely insane for us. But because of this condition, we ask ourselves, what do we make out the best out of this condition? There's always two ways of looking at it. Is, is the glass half full or half empty, right? So we decided we have no choice. We are here. This is our roots. Our kids are growing up speaking bilingual. Uh, and understand sort of the, the roots of, of being what being Chinese is in a global setting. Um, and so I think the idea of layering, um, that's the reason why this felt interdisciplinary. And that, that's probably why it's also very hard to kind of pin us, that, pin us down. And yet oftentimes people say, we get it, we see it, right. but we just don't. And, and by doing this, all the clients feel their project is their own. Despite the fact that they can say it's very near and who, they have their own layered look, right? Because they have their own layered sort of uh, hang-ups and um, issues, baggages that are actually part of that layered and, and, and part of that layer. So it, it actually in all the projects, I can show you all that, yeah.
That's amazing. Um, let's do a little lightning round. What's one thing people don't know about you? Actually, I can answer for Lyndon on this one. Okay. Yeah, he's an amazing basketball player. You you, you would not know. And, and no one would know, right? <laughs> but now they do. <laughs> What's one thing people won't know about Rosanna? As the that she actually uh, is an amazing piano player. Oh, that's not true. It is true. It true. is true. It is true. Yeah. Uh, biggest pet peeve in design? Decoration. Oh, really? Oh. For me, when things don't align. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um, besides your wallet or passport, one item you won't leave home without? It used to be my the, mask. <laughs> oh, yes. For me, it used to be the Bible, but now the Bible can be in the phone. So I think that that would be my first answer: the Word of God. Yeah, your mask. Um, what's still on your bucket list to create? An orphanage. Hmm. Um, lightning, Rosanna. Lightning. Oh, sorry, <laughs> I was going to say oh, a, a bag. A bag. Ooh, a purse or like a carry-all. I love it. Or yeah. Yeah. Just just a bag. We haven't designed a bag yet, so that'll that'll be next. Okay. Best piece of advice you've ever received. For me to be humble. Yeah, same to be humble. What do you think is your secret to success? Work hard. Um, to continue to define and redefine what success means. Yeah, love that. And why do you love what you do? We're just very grateful. Very grateful. Yeah. We don't know why. It's just, it's fun. <laughs> what we do is really fun. Well, actually, one thing uh, that we didn't talk about is what we're teaching. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, this semester we're teaching uh, graduate studio uh, at, at Harvard GSD and also Tongji here in, in, Shang- in Shanghai, Tongji University. And we're teaching about um, traveling. And um, our program is on um, cultural tourism. So I think just that, you know, from our experience working with hotels and the uh, hospitality industry, uh, we've seen a lot of kind of cases and examples of ways to deal with different cultures. You know, obviously, you know, we, uh, we're, we're Asian, having been educated in America, but we often are uh, designing in places that we don't know uh, that well. For example, we're doing a project in um, in Italy, and it's um, a place you know we're obviously not Italian. But how does a designer engage you know their personal kind of passions and history and uh, background and working in a in a different place? And I think a, a lot of it has to do with you know how do you bring different hybrids together. Um, and how do you work uh, with culture as an element in design? Um, so yeah, so that's that's something that's been really fascinating for us. Well, one one other thing I I would like to actually share is the fact that oftentimes, and I don't know if this is true in the U.S. or at least when we were going to school in the U.S., this was true. We're in the the medical field and the the tech world and the field of law uh, and business are glamorized more than design. Maybe that's changing now. And therefore you can kind of see with the compensation. Uh, and oftentimes you have the, the best minds do not go to the world of design because, you know, they just get so frustrated. Um, and you are left with the few that are really passionate. They stick it out because money is not important to them. Um, I actually w- want to address this to, to the world of design that, um, what we do is very important, you know, whether you're a graphic designer, interior designer, or architects or product designers, very, very important because it changed lives. Um, the everyday, the mundane, the ordinary that surrounds our everyday uh, is very much designed by an individual, the spaces that we are in. Uh, and just because we are not compensated, just because uh, the, the the narrative of this world does not put us in a position wherein perhaps we're not seen as important, that that is not true. That the gift that's given to us from above 
um, is equally important to the gift that's given to the person who's articulate in the legal system or very good in assessing sort of the medical condition of an individual. Sort of that design field is not just a, 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 a frivolous act. Um, it's actually an important um part of our daily lives just because we're not compensated as well as the lawyers or the doctors or the tech world um, we should continue to be resilient and we have to continue to stay focused because what we do is of equal importance or probably more yeah and i think even these past 18 months have even proven that even more right how much um buildings affect your well-being and your you know your emotions and who you you know your wellness and everything about it. So, um, absolutely. I, yeah. I love that sentiment. And I think yeah. it starts with education. So congrats for you guys for doing it. And how can we even trickle that down even more to get yeah. Yeah. amazing. Okay. And then we always end with, uh, one question and that's what has been your greatest lesson learned along the way? Humility, humility, humility. For me, it's, it's never good enough. Yay. I love it. Thanks for listening to Hospitality Designs, What I've Learned. If you like what you've heard, subscribe and review us on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find full episodes and transcripts at hospitalitydesign.com.